Hello and welcome. My name's Ben. I'm the CEO of Charlie HR, and this is the Culture Ops Podcast. We're the podcast that's trying to lift the lid on the challenging situations that affect your business and your culture on a daily basis. Let's get into it. Welcome back to another episode of the Culture Ops Podcast. And today we're going to talk about teams and we're going to talk about high performing teams for that matter. Much of our discussion over season one and two has been focused on the impact of individuals, the impact of specific policies or processes in how you run your organization. But we haven't talked a lot about teams. And ultimately, all of us work in a team or a part of a team uh, in the organizations that we work within. Yet, what a high-performing team can look like can be very different company to company. If your people are your building blocks of your culture, I really believe that teams are those cornerstones that help you craft an effective culture. So today I want to unpack what that relationship looks like. How do you build high-performing teams and what advantage does that give you as a business? And joining me is someone I massively respect when it comes to this subject, someone whose thinking has definitely informed a lot of what I think over the years and the author of what I believe to be one of the definitive books on high-performing teams, Koitu, author of Super Teams and senior client partner at Corn Ferry. Hey, Koi, how are you? I am great and really happy to be here, Ben, and just delighted to be the opening salvo of season three. What an honor and a privilege. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, let's see. Um, hopefully, we'll do the listeners justice. Um, let's just kick off uh, uh, to get you warmed up and um, tell the listeners, I guess, a little bit about you. But I Specifically, I think I'm interested to know why are you so fascinated with teams. Um, so I, you know, kind of, I'm I'm crazily in my fifties now, and you know, I, I've been working for thirty years. And I started in strategy consulting, went to industry, uh, and then went and did kind of startups and taking companies public during dot com. And you know, in that sense, I, I've kind of focused on strategy. I focused on you know, the way big companies work, industrial companies, and then also on the role of technology in business, all of which are really important. But through it all, one of the things I've figured out, uh, for myself at least, is my passion is at the intersection of strategy and people, technology and people, industry and people. And it's the people dimension, the way we work together, teams, uh, as well as broader culture, the way we do things around here, that is the dependent variable for success. And so that notion that humanity uh, should be the most important thing to think about, uh, I guess, is is my life's work. Um, I think it's the most important thing. I think it's the most interesting thing. And it's a part of what who we are. So I guess it, it strikes me as interesting. You said, you know, we all work in teams, but how come teams don't always work well? That's a kind of it's a conundrum. Um, and if there was a secret, I was wanting to figure it out. I don't know if there's best practice. There's certainly a few principles I believe in. Hmm. Yeah, and there's a very sort of, I don't know, when you think about team, you know, we're probably discussing it in, in the realm of the workplace. But obviously, there are teams that exist outside of the workplace and that, you know, intersect our lives in some way. Um, so that, you know, there's some big questions that surround it. 
I kind of like to always start, I guess, at the nuts and bolts because I think some of the some of the challenges that we have uh, to face when we talk about people and culture is that, you know, for the last 10, 20, 30 years, there have been, and I think it's declining, there's been pushback, which is sort of, yeah, I want to focus on my people, but sort of what's the bottom line impact going to be? What's what's the effect of culture going to be on our organisation? And I'm sure that's a conversation that you have with people a lot. How do you quantify or how do you reason with people as to the advantage that high-performing teams have on an organisation? Uh, so th- there are two answers to that, Ben. I think one is one is there's no point. Ignore them. They're going to be history pretty soon. Focus on the people that get it and help them because they're going to take over the world anyway and win. And uh, that, that's one version of an answer, you know, which is why waste our precious time on the Luddites who have got their heads so firmly rooted, either in the sand or somewhere else dark. Um, but, you know, sort of that's one approach. The other approach is to take a technical and research-driven approach, which says that uh, leaders generate 70% of uh, the experience or the climate or the culture that people experience. Now, so leadership, the style of leadership, generates about 70% of the experience that people have in their workplace, whatever that workplace may be. And the nature of their experience can lead to a 30%, 50% up, 15% down impact on bottom line results. So there's a straight through correlation between the style of leadership, the impact on culture, and the impact on final results. Uh, and that's research, which is, you know, you, there's multiple places where that research has been done. And it always comes out very clearly. So on the one hand, I'm a little bit tired of that argument because if you don't get it by now, what the hell's going on? On the other hand, if you want to make the argument, you can reverse engineer business performance and you can kind of put really quite clear, measurable uh, financial value uh, on the impact of culture and people. The challenging bit is as we move to a world where culture really matters, and the speed of change is so phenomenal, the metaphor of business as a machine and human beings as inputs, resources into the machine uh, is really out of date. You know, what we're looking at now is the metaphor is biology. And one of the struggles that people have is, uh, I can't shout at my plants to grow better. Yeah, I mean, you can create the conditions, you can cultivate them, but they're not necessarily going to do exactly what you want in a cause and effect way. Uh, and to a degree, the kind of people that say, oh, you know, this is soft stuff, you know, are, are really of a, of a group of people that are thinking about business as a machine. And, you know, the vast majority of leaders that we spend time with and I work with in companies that are either super fast growth or super successful Uh, already in, you know, some of the biggest companies in the world, I think they all get that. You know, that's not a question and a conversation we have to have anymore. Um, And actually, if someone asked me that question, I realize I'm in the wrong meeting. Yeah, that's interesting. So I just want to pause on that for a second. And, and, 
I guess lean on the context that you have that I don't, which is that you know you've you've worked in multiple contexts through a number of years. You have far more experience than I do, and so have you seen that change over the thirty years that you've been doing what you do? You know, and how stark has that been? Has it been a steady, a steady sort of decline in the number of luddites, as you as you as you frame it, that you've been having conversations with, or is it something in the last five years you've seen a dramatic change? You know, how do you how do you kind of contextualize that? I, I think if you look at the um, if you look at the kind of last ten years. Um, in terms of market capitalization of companies, what you've seen is a migration. Uh, some would say tech is now the dominant thesis, but really what you've seen is a migration away from physical capital, uh, more to kind of intellectual capital and then relationship capital. So, you know, kind of Apple's the most valuable company in the world. It's clearly intellectual capital uh, and moving increasingly to ecosystem, which is about relationships. And then you have companies like Microsoft, uh, Amazon, Google, Facebook. Those are all relationship capital companies. They are network orchestrators. Um, Some of them slightly more, you are the product, and others enabling in terms of platforms. But they fundamentally, the source of value creation is their ability to generate relationships with communities of people. And the way they generate relationships is through typically through quite innovative ways of working. And what people begin to understand is, and we're a few years away from, you know, real AGI driving innovation, you know, kind of a sort of artificial general intelligence. And so what we're still reliant on is people. So, you know, the the way that people generate innovation that come up with ideas, the way that they create links, emotional links with customers and consumers becomes the source of value as much as, if not more so, than physical assets. And so Aramco is still in there in the top 10 companies in the world of market cap, but none of the oil majors or energy majors are anymore. That's kind of interesting. So I think the world of physical capital, tangible value and assets has been usurped, taken over to a world of intangibles. It's about innovation. It's about relationships. and And it's about data at some level. And as a consequence of that, the bit that's the most dependent variable on how you generate any of that value has come back towards people. So, you know, we we were in the age of the factory, we were in the age of the machine, but we're beyond that. That is actually last century. But a lot of people grew up thinking and still do that that's the way forward. And so we're in in this moment where successful companies have got it, but not every company is successful. Um, most really forward-thinking leaders get it, but not everyone's a really forward-thinking leader. So I think the last 10 years, we've seen that acceleration. And then I think through COVID in particular, you know, the relationship between people and the companies they work in has really come into the spotlight. And that's really pushing the boundaries again of people having to rethink this stuff. Yeah, I think you're right. And I sort of, the way I describe the sort of the COVID effect on culture is, uh, and I'd be interested to see if you agree with this, I think pre-COVID it was easy to slightly say one thing and do another when it it comes to people strategy and and, and and it comes to culture because 
we weren't really being tested, right? Yeah. We can say we put our people first. That's a very easy thing to say. Most organizations will say that in some capacity. You face a global disaster, a global pandemic, a global trauma that affects all of us relatively similarly. And suddenly you're in this amazing sort of Petri dish of kind of realizing which which companies in that experiment are thriving and which ones aren't. And actually out of those people, who are the people that said, yeah, they, they, who who actually backed up those words with yeah um, with the action? Well, I I think we're in a world. Um, it used to be that tell me worked, you know, and then show me worked, and now it's a world where feel me, yeah, and I don't mean that in a kind of you know just a sort of uh, hip hop way, but it's my experience is is what I believe in. So if I'm not experiencing a world of work which aligns with what I was told, it's immediately apparent to me. And I think, you know, on the, in, the, in some ways we're in a post-truth world, you know, kind of, but in other ways, our, I think our bullshit detectors, excuse my language, are, are kind of more heightened than ever before. And our ability to say, you know, that's just not true. I don't you know, you might say that, but that's not my experience of it. And I will call you out on that fact. And the other thing I think COVID did is it, it demonstrated we can all sit at home, you know, not in the office, we can all sit at home, many of us at least, and, and, and others kind of maybe less fortunately, but for, for those so-called knowledge workers for whom, you know, kind of a big chunk of value creation and big chunk of people's lives can be done from home. And if you can do it from home, that means you don't have to do it in the office. That means you don't necessarily have to be inside this company in particular. And so suddenly you're sort of sitting there at home thinking, okay, I kind of miss the office in a way, but I can do this from here. I mean, look at you. You could, you could be doing this from anywhere. You know? and therefore, it's not just geography that becomes transient. It become, it's the relationship you have with the company. And, so, and the best people will have the most choice. And so for companies who, are, who always need the best people, you know, that's always been true. But it's more true now than ever before. Unless you can offer those people an experience of work which allows them to thrive, why would they work there? So that's really interesting. And it's really interesting because, you know, I and I... These are complex ideas. These are not. Um, it's not that operation. We'll get it operation yeah. in a second. No, these are complex ideas, and they are, they also aren't binary. I don't think. Right? There's lots of there's lots of sort of grayness within this in a, in a in a really beautiful and good way. But I think, you know, from from you know the way to explain things and help people operationalize things is often to simplify. And as I think about effective cultures, I think about three results. I think about uh, attraction of the right talent. You know, you talked about, you know, age of information, age of knowledge. You know, all of that is driven by people. So it's a, it's a game to see, can we get the best people through the door? It's retention. So it's, as you say, giving them that experience that keeps them in the building. And if all of that happens and you're setting people up correctly, the performance element will come. I... I think for the last 10 years, or maybe even going back a little bit further, we had less career mobility. 
people were people were not moving laterally as much as they do in their careers as they are doing now. I think we're also seeing at the back of COVID a little bit of a a reshuffling of 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 workforces, of teams, of people, of what's important to them. So I think maybe the weight at which we put on attraction it, it is shifting a little bit more towards retention because it's there is so much more opportunity out there. And if someone is having an experience that they're not engaged with, they're going to move. Have you examined, we, you know, it's that classic catchphrase of people leave companies because of bad managers or bad leaders. Like, what about bad teams? You know, and is a team, can a team be strong enough to keep someone in the building, even if there are maybe other toxic elements of that culture? Uh, so, you know, hey, and br- brilliant segue into the, the world of teams. Uh, so thank you for that. For, for me, teams are the unit of analysis and action, you know, uh, and it's where we experience most of our time at work. So a boss has a big impact on us. A bad boss is a kind of a really dramatic thing. You know, it's hard. But really kind of the fun, the productivity, you know, the innovation, the creativity, the performance happens typically not at a company level for most people, but at a team level. And so you can be in a company and you may not agree with everything, but if your team is on fire and you're, you know, you really have a bond, um, a certain level of trust and respect for the people you work with, I think that can be much more powerful than the relationship you have with your overall company. Uh, and it can frame it, it can amplify it, or it can mitigate risk. Um, so if you're loving the company and you're loving your team, it's great. If you're loving the company, but you're in the wrong team, you're going to move team pretty rapidly. If you're loving your team, but you don't quite like the company, it's a mitigating fact. You might stick it out. Uh, or the whole team's going to move with you. Yeah, interestingly. And, and do you think that that, um, you know, we're in the world of of sort of the cross-functional team in, in many organisations, that's, you know, I'm not saying that's, that's, that's commonplace, but that is, there is, you know, we're seeing more and more organisations kind of adopt that way of, especially within the kind of tech sector. Yeah, that kind of agile thing. Yeah. Do you think that the, the argument of the effect of a, of your team based on whether you want to stay or go or, or your, you know, your, your real visceral working experience, do you think the, there's an argument for shifting teams around more or, or keeping teams the same? Where do you, where do you come down on that? It's a good question. I mean, so, so there are two models. There, there are definitely, you know, kind of on the one hand, you have Pixar where people stay in that company for quite a long time. And you know, movies can take five years to make because, you know, the art of animation is a slower burn. Um, and they've been super successful by keeping their teams intact. Uh, and, and a really shared culture develops over time a way of doing things whereas the kind of the rest of the industry you know they bring people together and they kind of make a movie together and they all go off in their separate directions and you have pods you know directors have their favorite cinematographer who has his favorite favorite gaffer or whatever it may be but there are definitely multiple ways of doing it i think you know sort of one of the things is you're really balancing the benefits of diversity and the freshness that that brings you uh, with the benefits of 
being long-term trust and that sense of cohesion and all talking the same language. Uh, and in fact, the best teams always have that tension and have that tension very creative. You know, so it's a real creative tension that allows them to get the best of both worlds. The worst teams, you know, kind of by the time we've got to trust each other, we're breaking up again, you know, or we stay together so long we've become stale. There's a redundancy in the thinking because we're all thinking the same things. And so what we see is the best teams are always a mix of diversity and trust. And if you can generate trust quickly, then diversity is fantastic. But if you have lots of diversity, but you can't generate that trust or inclusivity, you know, you're actually going to have a problem. So I think it's the best of both worlds is what you're aiming for. And it, so that leads me on to sort of, I guess, the next area I want to sort of slightly unpack, which is do organizations spend enough time thinking about team construction? Um, you know, HR departments, people departments, they, we think a lot about the people we're hiring. We think a lot about individual appraisals. We think a lot about feedback on you and how you're doing and 360 reviews and all of that good jazz. Do we think enough about you know what is the what what is the performance of this individual in relation to the team what's the team that's going to do that's going to create the best results so i think it depends on the organization i mean we i had the great kind of fun working with uh, liverpool football club recently and and you know there's no question they're thinking about who's on the team in a really quite forensic way i mean they have some of the best data scientists um you know, kind of on the planet now thinking that through. Uh, and it's not just about the benefit of the individual, but if teams are genuinely more than the sum of the parts, what's the multiplier effect of each individual? And, you know, you can have a great individual, but if they have a negative impact on everyone else in the team, you know, it's probably just not worth it. I would suggest that companies are beginning to transition to being more thoughtful about team construction. It's already happened at the top. You know, so the, the, the leader and the leadership team, the CEO and the executive team, uh, absolutely think about um, getting the best person in that role, but they're fit within the team as well. And I think it creates more complexity to a degree because you've got to think, are they culturally the right person? Are they individual performance-wise the right person? And then are they team the right person as well? It's another layer you have to think about. And, and one of the challenges of that is, you know, do you have the data to be able to make that judgment? You know, do you have what it takes to be able to think about it in that way? Uh, and that's a bit of a new area, I think. So, my sense is it's an emergent area. Uh, more research and more practice has to be done in that. I think we can learn a lot from things like the world of sports, the world of, um, uh, you know, kind of music bands and things where team chemistry is is seen as vital already and understood as vital already. So that's interesting because I use, you know, I think in terms of my leadership philosophy, I think a lot about, you know, sports teams as a good proxy for, you know, um, the 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 output of all of us together is better is 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 better than 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 us as individuals. You know, um, I think you you don't want someone potentially. I mean, this is my hypothesis. You don't want someone on a team who is 
completely ego-driven and it is all about themselves. I think that's going to detract from other elements of the team. That's There's probably some debate there. You know, musicians and bands is an interesting uh, sort of the other side of the coin because maybe, you know, and I always think, I often think about your example of the Stones and um, uh, Keith and Mick and almost the dysfunction of their relationship but it, they're still a high-performing team. You know, there is something functional yet dysfunctional about it. And I, I don't know. Yeah, it's really interesting that. I, I mean, I, I like the example because it's accessible, you know, kind of even if you're not a big fan, you, you kind of know them. Um, I mean, my kids, I mean, my youngest is 15. Even she knows, you know, a Stone song comes on the radio and somehow she knows the lyrics. Yeah, And it's, I guess, you know, sort of, it, it's just one of those things, music, isn't it? That it kind of embeds itself in our human consciousness. The thing that I think we see with the best teams is there's this marriage between a level of trust and then the right fights. And those are also the best cultures. You know, it's, hey, we, we have a way of working together, which means we respect each other and we feel safe with each other. And there's that notion of psychological safety. But let's just call it trust because it's a simpler idea in a way. But on top of that, what are you doing with that trust? Is it just because you want to be cozy? Or actually, is the trust such that you're prepared to have a good old fight, to argue about it, to look for the best outcome possible, knowing that it's safe to push the boundaries and to say what you think, even if it might be different to what someone else thinks. And it's that energy, that creative abrasion, that often sees the most innovation, the most high performance. So you've got to have that sense of togetherness, but you've got to use that togetherness to explore the edges, maybe sometimes in opposition to each other. Um, so, Yeah, and I, 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 that's a really nice... That's a, that's a really nice way of describing it. The mental image that I use for that, I'm interested in your thought, is do you remember, I remember when I was a kid, there were these things called cat's cradles, which were like bits of string that you would like pull into different shapes and you would hold them in your hands. So to me, there's something really lovely about that sort of image because there is always a shape being, being drawn, being created, but the shape changes and adapts based on the the forces from different perspectives. And I, I I kind of always have that in my head as like, that's a really good way of thinking about a team, which is that it doesn't break apart. It is not, it is not about individual individual aspects, but it is about the pressure and constraints and the energy that individuals apply to the problem or to the challenge that that ultimately creates that culture or creates the output or, or, you know, delivers the decision. There are a couple of things that really resonates with me when you talk about that. First of all, I can kind of, uh, it's a really great visual, isn't it? Because you can kind of see it in your hands, that mesh and how it shapes. And yeah, I think, you know, the thing that maybe the principle that we can extract from it all that is operationalizable is culture is very dynamic and team relationships are very dynamic. And whereas organization structure is often quite stable. You know, and and you, know, you don't want to keep changing the structure, although in these days we see people changing structure quite often. But, but you know, so I think one of the things that's interesting is the cat's cradle is, is a great metaphor for the way that relationships have to move. 
And the good news is, as human beings, we're, we're quite versatile, we're quite adaptable and agile, especially around relationships. And, and I say that, you know, kind of the best relationships are the ones that, like the cat's cradle, can change shape. Yeah, I mean, if one of you is growing and the other isn't, that's often a bit of a recipe for something not working. But, but in families and in great teams, the dynamic is just that. It moves, you know, and sometimes there's give and sometimes there's take. Uh, and I think we learn this quite early on. Uh, and sometimes we learn the wrong lessons, which is, you know, kind of some families don't want you to change shape. Um, but I think, you know, sort of there's something, as you say, quite beautiful about growing, you know, both independently and collectively. Uh, and that, that dynamic is kind of cool. Yeah, that's lovely. Growing independently and collectively. I think that's exactly what we should be thinking about. We'll kind of spin forward a little bit and think about operationalizing some of this stuff a little bit more. So, you know, we we predominantly work with small small businesses. That's what I'm passionate about. I'm passionate about early stage, sub 200 people, get it right, think about this stuff early. Um you know, I think that's where the innovation of tomorrow is going to come from. It's never been easier to start a business, right? Um, so how do we give first-time founders, how do we give, you know, new founders, new operators the tools to think about this stuff? So if you're kind of in that in that group uh, of operators, what are maybe some of the things that they can be thinking about when it relates to team formation? Like, what are the what are the simple rules of thumb? What are the sort of the 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 ideas that they can keep in the back of their heads to help them craft those teams? So, firstly, founders typically have, you know, kind of they have a a super magical ability to establish the culture of whatever firm they're founding. You know, I mean, they will imbue and embed in the way that they behave, especially in the early stages, the tone of the company. And so on the one hand, it's not to be uh, too formulaic and, and think, you know, I've got to spend loads of time thinking about this. It's got to be somewhat instinctive and authentic. But, but you should be deliberate about thinking about what am I trying to grow here? What do I want it to feel like to be part of this? What's sacred in my firm? Yeah, I mean, one of the really interesting things, someone did this wicked experiment. They put 23 years of Bezos's letters to shareholder through a word cloud. The most popular word, you take out the prepositions and stuff like that, is customer. You know, and if, if you ask anyone at Amazon what's sacred at Amazon, it's customer. Yeah. And, and and you know, that's sort of, you know, there's there's a thing that if you say, okay, what do I want my culture to be? You know, what do I want the person standing next to me to believe in the way that I believe? What's that core value? That becomes quite operationalizable, you know, because it's what you say continuously, it's what you try and hire for, it's what you repeat, it's what you reward, it's who you hero, it's the rituals you create around that that then becomes the foundations of your culture. 
Totally agree. And let's give Jeff all of the benefit of the doubt. And let's just assume that that was all purposeful. <laughs> and, and he was being very deliberate about that. I'm sure there's a bunch of it, which is very deliberate. And maybe some of it was a, which a bit less. But I think that's definitely a theme that I'm noticing in my, my conversations. As we think about what does it mean to be a leader and turn up to an office every day versus what does it mean to be a leader and have to do it remotely? There's an element of sort of baked in uh, context and um, communication that happens with in-person working every day, Monday to Friday in the office. There are little conversations that you have, there are little moments, people can hear your conversations, you can hear other people's conversations. The spread of information is a bit subtle but it sort of happens a little bit behind the scenes. And I think you can be a bit less intentional about it. I think the, the big shift for being a, you know, a more hybrid organization, uh, even a remote organization, is that we have to be way more intentional in how we communicate those values, those things that are important. Because if we haven't written them down and we haven't actually built a process and thought about what are our communication moments, what are the... What are the tools that we've got to remind people that this is the type of culture we're trying to build, this is the type of business we're trying to build, then it's not going to happen as easily. It's a brilliant point. I mean, I think we we got to a level of where it was really organic and then suddenly we went to this really artificial. And, you know, kind of my diary is filled with meetings and those meetings are really intentional. You know, they have agendas. They're with the people that I'm meant to see on this specific topic about this specific task. And in between, I'm not bumping into anyone. You know, kind of, well, I might bump into my kids and my wife on the way to the kind of the bathroom or to make a cup of coffee. But, but I'm not having those moments. And the collection of those moments ends up being the experience of work. And so what we have are just these prescribed technical moments and I think you do need to think about, well, what is the sum of that experience? And what else do I need to put in it to kind of to get the kind of experience to convey what I'd like to convey? And I think one of the biggest things that founders learn over time is, I mean, Brian Chesky from Airbnb talks about at each stage of growth, it's not become a better player of the sport you're playing. It's learning how to play a different sport. Yeah. Each stage of scaling is so different. And the biggest takeaway, he says, in terms of change is the mechanism by which he communicates. It's so much more formal once you get beyond the Dunbar number of 100 and whatever it is, people that we can know personally. You know, as soon as you've got more than one office, you know, kind of, that's an issue for you as a founder. So I think you should be thinking about this shift to hybrid almost like a version of scaling, that it's a different game and you have to start thinking again about how do I, how do I give people a sense of what it means to be here and what's important about being here? Because the here isn't here anymore. Yeah, it's sort of what is the, the, the thing that binds us together is much more that that feeling, that experience, it isn't, it's not four walls. It's not, you know, some, some like weird, uh, I don't know, breakout area or, or, or um, you know, I don't know, crappy kitchen in the corner. It's, it's... Here's where I'm a little confident about the future, though. Um, 
you know, my 15-year-old daughter, Amelie, uh, made some brilliant friends through lockdown, uh, doing kind of online versions of mine, you know, kind of playing Minecraft and then online uh, with Discord doing D&D and stuff like this. And she met them physically, some friends recently, and she, and she sort of said, wow, I've never seen your legs before. And, you know, it's one of those funny kind of moments of humanity in a way. But their ability to create a vibe amongst themselves, never having met before, means it's completely possible to do it. Uh, I don't think they were intentional about that in any way, shape, or form. Now, they were just super authentic in the way that kids are beautiful and can be. It's really innocent. But, but it created a vibe. It created a group. And, and, you know, when other people come into that group that don't have that vibe, it changes the vibe. And sometimes they don't like it. And they have to kind of kick that person out. So I think it's possible. We can figure it out. And maybe we have to look at people who are more naturally, natively, you know, kind of virtual in their way of operating. Agree. And, and you know, you said the kind of, it's my, it's my bingo word at the moment, but authenticity, right? You know, the leaders of remote organizations, hybrid organizations, I think authenticity really is, really is important because, like we said, one of the component, one of the key component parts of a team is building that trust. You can have dysfunctional or seemingly dysfunctional uh, teams, you know, Mick and Keith from the Stones, from the outside, not talking to each other, getting in arguments, that feels really dysfunctional. But there's that trust that binds them together that allows them to do that. And I think the fastest way to build trust at scale with lots of people is to deliver that or that authenticness, to be, to be vulnerable, to be your true self. I think it's going to be very hard to be that sort of classical, more old school leader yeah. of, of yesteryear. But here's the good news. The, the good news is, you know, I actually kind of know what most people's houses look like. More, way more than I kind of did when, you know, before, before this kind of really challenging era. I've met more people's kids, certainly met more people's dogs and cats. You know, our, our real lives just have, have punched through, yeah, and kind of they found a way to kind of come to work with us. So on the one hand, yeah, we're, we're no longer working from home, we're sleeping in the office. But, but the good news is, is, you know, there's a bit more integration maybe, yeah, you know, I don't have to hide the fact that actually, you know, kind of there are screaming kind of kids behind me and, and I love them. And, you know, that's kind of, that's sort of, I think, really potentially very powerful. The other thing is, is around this period is, look, it has been genuinely really awful for a lot of people from a well-being perspective, health-wise, both psychologically as well as, you know, through the, the pandemic itself the opportunities to show empathy and care have never been greater. You know, so a lot of time, you know, you're at work, there's a few formal hurdles before you can get to how's it going and genuinely have a genuine conversation. Yeah, I mean, we kind of, we walk into the office and our real selves get kind of pushed to the back as we sharpen our ties. Whereas now it's sort of, it's all, we're all out there and people are going through some really heavy stuff. So, I think your opportunity as a leader, your opportunity as a culture carrier to connect with people 
you know, yeah, it's harder in some ways virtually, but it's also, there's more to kind of share and there's more shared experience and more shared hardship than perhaps there was. So maybe there's a silver lining to all of this. Yeah, and look, I think I'm definitely a silver lining person and I think... Yeah, there are. There's there's always benefits to be found, and I think that's, you know, in many ways, it's about what type of individual are you, right? If if you're the type of person that's going to look for those things, you will find them. So we're going to sort of slightly begin to bring bring to a close, and I have two questions to finish on. And the first one is, if someone's been listening to this and they think, okay, I really want to just go away and think about what's the impact our current teams are having on our culture. What's the question they should ask themselves? Uh, oh, wow, that's a good one. Um, I think at the moment, I'm really into teams being able to define when they're at their best and saying, let's do more of that. Not taking the, here's where we're terrible and going through that kind of city of pity kind of thing. Yeah, Just going for, look, we're awesome when we do this together. Let's do. Let's figure out why and how we're awesome, and let's do more of that. And you know, so every team will be adding something positive to the culture, something. And your job maybe is just to look at that and see how you can do more of that. Yeah, love that. That's super good. Work out what the team's superpower is, and go help and produce more of it. Second question, final question that I get a lot. It's a classic question. I, I give an answer on it but I'd like to get yours, is um, we have uh, an organization where we have, let's say, a production kitchen and an office team, or we have a, a factory kitchen and an office team, or we have a, um, a, like a data science team and we have a sales team. Yeah. Uh, we feel like they've got two different cultures. And the question I normally get is, how do we make them part of the same culture? What's your answer to those to those people? Um, there, are, oh God, I'm going to sound like such a consultant. I was going to say, you know, it depends. But no, it's, I guess two quick answers. Number one, do you really need them to be exactly the same? Yeah, I mean, kind of, you know, one of the greatest things I love is is you know, sort of when you're going to a different country, it, just the curiosity of, whoa, that's so different. I can't believe how funny that is and how brilliant it is that it's so different. So maybe you don't need them to be the same. But the question is, and one of the great things that company cultures can do is, is a bit like an API. They can deliver interoperability. Yeah? So what is the interoperability you need between those two cultures? Do they need to be exactly the same? And if so, okay, you know, maybe you need to work towards that. But actually, you know, they could be brilliantly different, but there needs to be one point of connection. And what's that point of connection? And find the best version of that connection and really work at that. Uh, so is that an answer? Does that work, Ben? Is that- yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great answer. I had, um, I had Bruce Daisy on the podcast um, and Bruce was talking about, you know, this is the same thing, which is that actually we should lean into Teams' differences. We should lean into those things and, and, and allow them to be unique and celebrate them, right? And... Um, you know, we don't, we don't, we're not trying to, we're not trying to build cults. I think, I think that's, that's, that's what I always remind myself. But I think there's got to be some way, I mean, shared humanity in culture really matters. So, you know, breaking bread together is one of those universal things. 
And the thing, you know, kind of, the, if you can celebrate differences, then the shared humanity is your both sides are celebrating each other's difference. So, you know, it's finding those points of commonality uh, that are worthwhile and also, you know, shared purpose. You know, kind of, we're, we're all different, but we're all aiming for something that's kind of really powerful, that's bigger than all of us. That can be really bonding together as well. Yeah, I totally agree. Profound, important, and, you know, if, if you're sitting there thinking, what is my what is our purpose as an organization? I think Corey's just given you a nice little tidbit to take away and have a and have a think about. Um, we're gonna have to wrap up there. I'm conscious that you have other things to go and do. And um, we're at 44 minutes, which is a great conversation for us. Um, Corey, thanks so much for joining us today. I really, really appreciate your time. Um, nice. I really enjoyed that. I hope you did too. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me and good luck with season three. Thank you. Thank you, mate. Really appreciate it. Um, I've got to thank Mel, our producer behind the virtual glass, keeping the show on the road. To all of you listening along, wherever you are, we really appreciate you. And uh, we're glad that you're back for season three. And we hope to bring you uh, some great episodes over the next uh, nine, ten editions. Uh, We look forward to seeing you again next week. I've been Ben Branson, your host. And this has been the Culture Ops Podcast. (laughs) 